Today we're beginning a a brand new uh, sermon series looking at the book of Jonah, uh, the prodigal prophet, or as we thought about calling it, the worst missionary of all time. Uh, So Jonah is a short book near the end of the Old Testament, Uh, and so if you're wanting to begin to kind of find it, uh, it's kind of right there in between Obadiah and Micah, kind of in the prophetic books near the end of the Old Testament. And and Jonah is one of those books of the Bible where, uh, you know, even if you didn't grow up in church, I didn't grow up in church myself. Uh, I became a Christian in my college years, but, but if you didn't grow up in church, Jonah is one of those books of the Bible. You, you may still be somewhat familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, and, and, and if you've been in church your whole life, then you likely feel like this is a book that you know really, really well. But here's the thing about the book of Jonah. Here's the thing. Even though it is a very well-known uh, book of the Bible, it is one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. So even if you you feel like, hey, I I know this one, I want to really encourage you to remember God's Word is always living and active. It always has something to say to us. It always has something to teach us. And and no matter how well you think you already know it, it has something to say to you again. Uh, and, And sometimes we find out maybe we don't know it as well as we thought we did. Or at least we find God showing us the same story from a different angle that helps us get a deeper picture of, of God's goodness and God's grace. Uh, when, when you talk about Jonah, it's inevitable that you're also going to have to talk about the whale, right? The great fish, as we read in the text. It's easy to get distracted by the whale and, and sort of just assume, pun intended, pun intended here, that, that Jonah is just another fish story. Um, some of you will, will be tempted because of the great fish to just immediately dismiss this book as fiction, uh, to only see it as a parable or an allegory. But despite the implausible elements that we see in Jonah, the Bible presents Jonah as a, an historical, factual account. Jonah is not written like a parable. Uh, in fact, it's, it's not really written like most of the other prophetic books. Jonah is historical narrative. That's its genre. Uh, God is communicating gospel truth through recording, the recording of actual events that happen to actual real people in their lives. That's what we see here. Jonah is a real man. He's not a fictional character. You find him mentioned elsewhere in the Bible in, in 2 Kings 14.25 where he prophesied to King Jeroboam II. Uh, Jonah was a historical prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament, of course, is like a mouthpiece for God. God spoke through his prophets to communicate his word to his people, the Israelites. But, but 2 Kings 14 isn't the only place in the Bible that supports the truthfulness of the book of Jonah. Jesus himself also affirms the truthfulness and the factual nature of the account of Jonah. Matthew's gospel records two occasions, two separate occasions where the influential Jewish leaders, the Pharisees of the day, right, asked Jesus for some sort of sign uh, to, to confirm his divinity. And Jesus answered them that the sign of Jonah was the only sign that they would get. We'll get into more of that as we work our way through the book. But, but the, if the book of Jonah was nothing more than a legend or, or, or just fiction, its value as a sign would seem very questionable. Here's the point I'm trying to make. I don't want you to get distracted by how well you assume that you already know this, this, this account, this book of the Bible. Nor do I want you to get distracted by the great fish that you miss out on seeing the even greater God who's present in these, these pages of Scripture. And I don't want you to miss what he has to show you in this book. After all, the book of Jonah isn't really about the whale. It really isn't. In fact, the great fish is barely mentioned at all 
in the book of Jonah. He, he is mentioned in two separate verses in the entire book. Two verses. So, so what is Jonah really about then? Well, Jonah has something to teach us about mission. He has something to teach us about mission, about God's heart for those who do not yet know him. And even more, his heart for those who are opposed to him. His heart for his enemies. Jonah teaches us a lot about God's sovereignty and God's grace. Jonah exposes the wickedness of of racism and nationalism. Jonah teaches us about the struggle to obey and trust God and take him at his word and how easily we can be prone to idolatry. It teaches us about the nature of our sin and the wonder of God's grace. And in the end, it not only shows the heart of Jesus for those sinners out there, but also his heart for sinners like you and me. His heart for us as we see God's patience and his grace that he continually shows and gives to Jonah. That's really what I hope we'll ultimately see in this book. And even today, as we begin with the opening verses here in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you haven't already got there, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered here today. We're grateful that in, in gathering here, we, we, we know, and we, as we look into your word, we know your heart is for us. Your heart is to come after us, is to call us to you. Your heart is to call others to yourself and to use us as your ambassadors. And Lord, we, we pray that in this time uh, that we're living in, that you would help us to have more of your heart for others, that you would help us to see your grace toward us and that that grace would move us to love and extend that grace, that love, that mercy to others who need to know it, who need to see it. Lord, would you speak to us today? Would you have your way with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Right, in these opening verses, three things. Conveniently, right? Uh, We see an unlikely call, an unlikely response, and we begin to get a picture of an unlikely God. First, an unlikely call. Uh, The book of Jonah begins with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That seems normal enough, right? This is the usual way to begin uh, a prophetic account, a book of of prophecy in the Old Testament, one of the prophetic books. That as a common language for the prophets, that that God is about ready to speak, that he's he's giving his word to his prophet to speak to his people. He's getting ready to give his word, to share. But by verse 2, the original readers of the book of Jonah would have recognized that this was a prophetic account unlike any other they had heard before. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. What does the word of the Lord say? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is an unlikely call on on so many different levels. A, A shocking call, really. 
First, it was shocking to see God calling one of his prophets to go speak to a Gentile city. The work of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament was to be a mouthpiece of, for God to his people, the Israelites. Like they're not, they don't speak, they don't go to the Gentile nations, though they go to Israel and they speak God's word to Israel. Uh, the prophets were sent by God to speak his word to his people. Up to this point, the prophets had only been sent to God's people. Now, you will read throughout the, the pages of the Old Testament that there were occasions where some prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Amos, they did deliver a few brief prophetic oracles to pagan countries, but none of them were ever actually sent out to those nations in order to preach to them. Jonah's mission here is very much unprecedented. Turn the, turning that shock level all the way up to 11, like spinal tap style, uh, is the fact that the pagan nation that he sent to is Assyria. Assyria, Nineveh, that great city, which uh, if you were thinking about where, where's Nineveh, where would it be located? It would be today located in modern day northern Iraq. That's where Nineveh was. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, which just happened to be the most violent and cruel, uh, most powerful empire of the day. Uh, seriously, like the, the Assyrians took uh, cruelty and violence up to a whole nother level. Um, Tim Keller kind of mentions some of the just history here, but he says, yeah, he refers to the fact that after capturing enemies, the Assyrians would often cut off both legs and one arm of their victims, leaving one arm and hand intact so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as they bled out and died. They would force friends and family members to parade around town with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles. Right? Those who survived their violent campaigns were forced into brutal slavery. Like These were wicked, violent people. At the time of Jonah, the Assyrian Empire had already been exacting heavy tribute and taxation from Israel and continued to threaten the Jewish northern kingdom. And in 722 BC, Assyria finally invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. Yet here is God calling Jonah to go to the Assyrian capital on a mission trip, right? Think about it. Think about this. There would be no reason for God to send a warning to Nineveh unless there was a chance of judgment being averted. As we will later see, Jonah himself was, was very aware of this fact. Uh, so the question that we're left with is, is sort of this. How could a good God give a nation like Assyria the opportunity to experience his mercy? How? Why would God actually help the enemies of his own people? We'll have to wait for the answer until later. But this is a very unlikely call. A very unlikely call. We also see an unlikely response. We expect to see God's prophet carrying out God's call, right? And proclaiming God's word, right? He's a prophet of God, a man of God. He's supposed to say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me, right? That's what his response is supposed to be. But that's not what we see here. Instead, we're shocked to find God's prophet running from God and refusing to obey and trust God. Verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship that was going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It's a deliberate play on words. We're meant to laugh a little bit here. That God calls Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah arose to go in the opposite direction, as far away as he could from where God has called him. There's some debate about the exact location of, of Tarshish, but what is agreed upon is that it was located in the extreme west of the known reachable world of the day, right? Which puts it at, at just about as far as you can go in the opposite direction of where God has just called Jonah to go. Here is the, the prophet of God doing the exact opposite of what God just told him to do. God called him to go east and he goes west. Right? God called him to travel over land and Jonah jumps on a boat and heads out to sea. God called him to go to the big city and Jonah buys a one-way ticket to the outermost, most farthest end of the world. A prophet's supposed to be faithful, right? A prophet is supposed to be godly, even in the face of opposition. This is an unexpected response at first glance. But a deeper dive shows us that the response is not so shocking coming from Jonah. Not so shocking at all coming from him. But perhaps what is more shocking is that God would call Jonah, of all people, to go in the first place. But the book of Jonah doesn't give us really much background information on Jonah at all. It just tells us his name, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we mentioned already that, that Jonah, the son of Amittai, is also mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, where he ministered during the reign of King Jeroboam II, which, by the way, if you don't know all of your kings of the Old Testament, he's not one of the good ones. Not one of the good ones. If you dig into 2 Kings 14, what you will discover is that unlike the prophets Amos and Hosea, who criticized Jeroboam II uh, for his injustice and his unfaithfulness, Jonah supported the king's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. The original readers of Jonah would have known, they would understand this background knowledge and immediately have recognized Jonah as an intensely patriotic and highly partisan nationalist. That's who he is. He hates Assyria. He hates those Gentile dogs. He hates them. He's a bigot. And it would have hit them how shocking it is that this is the prophet that God was sending to Nineveh. They would have been amazed to see Jonah called to preach to the very people he feared and hated the most. However unlikely or not, Jonah's response is to run from God. It's to run from God. With, with that background info, we can make some guesses as, as to why he ran, he ran from God. But, and in chapter four, we'll, we'll get confirmation of the real reason. But for now, our focus is not so much on why he ran, but on the nature of his running, the nature of his response. And we see here that the Jonah turns both from the word of the Lord and from the presence of the Lord. All right? And you see the result of that 
is, you know, the, the language here. He goes down to Joppa, and then he finds a boat that's headed to Tarshish, and he goes down into the boat. And, and so this turning from the, the word of the Lord, this turning from the presence just leads to this kind of downward spiral. He keeps going further and further down, running from the Lord, further and further away from the heart of the Lord. The reality is is that Jonah couldn't see any good reason for God's command. And he assumed that if he couldn't see any good reason for it, there must not be any good reason for it. So he wants to have nothing to do with it. Jonah doubted the goodness of God. He doubts the wisdom and justice of God. And so he turned from God's word. He turned from God's presence and ran away in the opposite direction descending further and further away from the heart of the Lord. And as we think on Jonah's response, we we shouldn't miss this connection between doubting God's goodness and turning from his presence and his word. There's a connection there. But when we, as well, when we doubt God's goodness, when we doubt his goodness, what do we tend to do? We quickly turn away from his word. We quickly turn away from his presence in prayer, which in turn only leads to doubting his goodness more and continuing our turn away all the more. And it works in reverse too. Sometimes when we get out of sync with being in God's word and and abiding in his presence in prayer, enjoying his good presence, we find ourselves increasingly prone to doubt his goodness to doubt his, his justice, to doubt his mercy, which further keeps us from spending time in the word and in prayer, enjoying his presence. I mean, what happens to so many of us? We suffer a tragic loss. Or you get, or someone you love gets bad news from the doctor. Or that relationship that you thought was, was the perfect you know, the relationship of your dreams, that that everything you ever dreamed of, and then it comes to a devastating end. The temptation in all those situations is to assume God doesn't know what he's doing here. God's not being good to me right now. How can anything good come out of this? And in those moments, we're, we're met with a decision, an opportunity to make a choice. Will we take God at his word? Will we trust that he is good? That he has our best in mind? That's what he tells us over and over and over again. Will we press into his presence? Will we press into his word? Will we trust God or will we run from God? That's the decision. That's a choice that humanity has been faced with ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Right? In the Garden, in those first three chapters of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 especially, right? We, we, we read about how God gave our first parents one commandment. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from every other tree in the garden, but do not eat from this one tree, the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Or for when you eat of it, you will surely die, Genesis two seventeen. And the fruit of that tree, it looked good. It was pleasing to the eyes. It was desirable. Yet God gave no reason, no reason why it was wrong 
to eat from the tree. He just said, do not eat from this tree. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. It doesn't say why it's wrong to eat from the tree. And Adam and Eve in that moment, they decided, as Jonah did later, that if they couldn't think of a good reason for God's command, there must not be one. And in their view, God could not be trusted to have their best in mind. So they ate. And we've all been running from God ever since. We've all been running from him ever since. Jonah's response really gives us a picture of the essence of sin, right? Sometimes in the church, we think of sin as like these specific actions that we take. But, but sin, in its, when you really boil it down to its essence, like the book of Jonah never even uses the word sin, by the way, but it tells us about sin. It tells us about the nature of sin. Sin is running from God. It's failing to trust God and take him at his word. And as a result, we run. We head in the opposite direction from where he's told us to be. God says, don't eat from that tree. We eat from that tree. God says, go to Nineveh. And we buy a one-way ticket to the other side of the world. But as you dig deeper, there are really two ways of running from God. And throughout the course of this entire book, uh, we're going to see how Jonah illustrates both of these ways. The book of Jonah really is kind of, as you, as you see it in its whole, is like perfectly divided in these like mirroring halves. Uh, you know, chapters one and three are, are very similar in the fact that you, you have uh, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah and calling him to go to Nineveh. But, you know, chapter one, you see him outright rejecting the call uh, to, and running in the opposite direction of where God has told him to go. In chapter three, the, the word of the Lord comes again and tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah reluctantly and loosely obeys, half-heartedly at best. Uh, like This is not like re- real repentance in chapter two and three. Uh, but half-heartedly, he, he does the very bare minimum to kind of check the box, I did what you told me to do. In chapters two and four, Jonah prays. Chapter two, he prays, he acknowledges God responding to his plea for help and rescue. He acknowledges God's deliverance, but it's hardly a real prayer of repentance. I mean, Jonah in the book of Jonah never repents, never fully repents. In chapter four, Jonah prays, but essentially that prayer is more of a rant against God for, for showing mercy to these people he hates. Jonah is so angry in that prayer that he says at one point it would be better for him to die than to live with this tension between God's justice and mercy that he cannot reconcile. Basically tells God in the prayer, kill me now. Right? That's his prayer. But in the, those responses, right, in those mirroring halves, if you will, that kind of run parallel to one another, uh, you know, in those responses, he, Jonah illustrates these two different kinds of ways that we can run from God. The classic example of, of the two ways that we run from God is found in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 15, in a parable that Jesus teaches, the parable of the prodigal son, right? There's actually two sons in the parable, the younger son and the older son, the younger brother and the older brother. The younger brother runs from his father's control by demanding his inheritance, leaving his home, completely rejecting all of his father's moral values and just diving headlong into rebellion and indulgent sinfulness. Right, sex, drugs, and rock and roll turned up to 11. 
That's the younger brother. And that's Jonah here in chapters one and two. He's the younger brother. He's running in open rebellion against what God has called him to do. Plainly running in the opposite direction of where God has called him. Doing the exact opposite of everything God has asked him to do. In the parable of the prodigal son, there's also the older brother who stayed at home, who seemingly obeyed the father completely. But at the end of the parable, when the father does something with the remaining wealth that he doesn't approve of, he explodes in anger at the father, which shows us that he too never really loved the father either. That's Jonah in chapters three and four. The older brother was, was not obeying out of love, but only as a way to try to put the father in his debt so that he could control the father, seeking to gain control over him so that he had to do. The father had to do what he wanted him to do because look at what I've done. You owe me. That's the heart of the older brother in the parable. Neither son in the parable in their sin trusts the father's love. And both are trying to find ways to escape the father's control. One did it by disobeying all of the father's rules. The other did it by obeying the father's rules. And in the church, we tend to recognize rather quickly the indulgent way of running from God. And we're quick to point out the younger brothers out there and how they run from God. And that's really kind of some of the irony here in these opening verses of Jonah. Jonah quickly identifies the indulgence of the Ninevites and thinks that they should be beyond the reach of God's grace. Like those people do not deserve mercy. Those people cannot be shown mercy. Like they cannot be. Look at how sinful and rebellious they are. And yet, what is Jonah doing in that? He himself is deliberately rebelling against God. Deliberately rebelling against him. We, we can tend to recognize the indulgent, rebellious way to run from God in others. But there's also another way to run. And we can just as easily fall into this trap of assuming, well, I, I go to church, I'm moral, I'm a good person. God owes me. He owes me. He, he needs to answer my prayers the way I want him to answer my prayers. If I do the right things, he's obligated to bless me. If I do the right things, then God can't ask too much of me or ask me to do things that I don't really want to do. He owes me, not the other way around. We may not think it and say it like that overtly, but that's how we functionally can find ourselves relating to God at times. But that is far from moving toward God in love, in grateful joy, in glad surrender. It's far from that. It's rather a way of, of keeping God at arm's length. Like, I don't want to be too close, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you right here. And, and running from his heart. Both of these two ways to run from God assume that God can't be trusted. They assume that he can't be trusted. We can't trust that he has our best in mind. We have to force God to give us what we really want. Jonah serves as a, the classic Old Testament example of these two ways to run from God, just like the prodigal son parable does in the New Testament. But running from God strikes us as an unlikely response from a prophet of God. 
But in all of this, we're being prepared to dig into the mystery of God's mercy. But there is a mystery here about how God's mercy works, about his heart towards sinners and sufferers. And that's the real problem that's facing Jonah. As we consider God's call to Jonah and God's pursuit of Jonah throughout this book, we also start to find an unlikely God. Like Jonah, we can sometimes think that God should be a God who just destroys rebellious sinners. That should be how he responds. He just destroys rebellious people. Some of us assume that because we only see the world around us like Jonah views Nineveh. When I worked for a campus ministry uh, back in the day, many years ago now, uh, at IU, uh, I would go to some of these supporting churches of that ministry around the state of Indiana and other towns in Indiana. And I always remember people would inevitably, at any of those places, somebody or multiple people were going to make this comment to me. Oh man, sure glad you're there in Bloomington. That is a dark place. That is a dark place. IU, what a dark place. I'm glad you're there. And, And friends, the world is a dark place. The world is a dark place. So yes, Bloomington's in the world. Obviously, it's a dark place. But, but that attitude, that comment sort of almost assumes like, I live in a place of light. I live in a good place. But that, that place, that's a dark place. Those people, they're really the wicked ones. It's that kind of attitude that's kind of underlying that comment. But listen to God's heart for Nineveh. That place. That place of cruelty and violence and wickedness. God wants his prophet to go there and speak his word to those people, to proclaim his goodness and invite them to know his mercy. God's heart for Bloomington is the same. He sent you and me as his people to this place in this time to love our city with his love, to to share his goodness and mercy, to call out to our city that they might know his goodness and and respond and know his mercy. Some of us assume that that God is opposed to rebellious sinners in a different way too. Some of us assume that God is opposed to rebellious sinners because we feel like in our own sin, we are beyond the reach of his grace. That we have outsinned his grace. But just watch as we work our way through this book how God will continue to pursue this prodigal prophet, how he will continue to run after Jonah with his grace and continue to show patience and invite him to respond anew. Just as Jonah varies his approach to running from God throughout the course of the book, God will also vary his strategies in pursuing all while continuing to extend mercy in new ways. He does the same thing with us. Even though, like Jonah, we neither understand nor deserve it. He does the same thing with us. The book of Jonah really, in the end, sets up for us this wonderful contrast between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah, after all, was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life. But then God came and called him to go to Nineveh to do a different work for the sake of people that God loves people facing certain judgment. And Jonah said, no, I won't do it. Jesus was in heaven. 
the most comfortable, the best place there could ever be, ruling the universe by the word of his power, being worshiped by angels. Jesus was in the best place, doing the best work, enjoying the truly best existence when the Father came and called Jesus to go to another place where he would be utterly rejected, where he would become the atoning sacrifice for people that God loves who are facing eternal judgment. And Jesus said, yes. He said, yes. Jesus, like Jonah, was tempted to run from his call, but he didn't. Jesus is the greater Jonah, the true and greater Jonah, because even though Jesus alone uh, is truly, perfectly obedient, he laid down his rights and exchanged his perfect obedience for your sins and mine. He was relentless in carrying out God's call. Jesus willingly gave himself as a perfect sacrifice to save you from the destruction you had brought upon yourself by running from God. He lived the sinless life you couldn't. He died the death that you deserve for your sins. He was raised so that he might extend to indulgent prodigals and self-righteous older brothers the mercy we could never deserve but so desperately need. What an unlikely God. What an unlikely God. A God we could never make up. We would, if it was up to you and me, what, what kind of God would we make? The kind of God that lets us do whatever we want and destroys anyone and everyone else that we don't like. That's the kind of God we would invent. Recognizing the mercy of God and the lengths that Jesus went to, to extend that mercy to us, that frees us from our running, however we're doing that running. The question for, for you today is this, how are you running from God? How are you running? Are you running by turning your back on God to pursue your own way in rebellion? Are you running in indulgence, distrusting that God has your good in mind, that you need to claim what's good for you by your own work and effort? Or are you running in self-righteousness? Are you running from your call? Your call that he sent you to be his people on mission, to join Christ in the mission that he, he has, that he came on, to carry that mission forward and, and sharing his word, sharing his truth, sharing the rescue that we have in Jesus with others. Are you running from God's grace for you? How are you running? The answer for our running is always to look at Jesus, to see his heart that moves towards us in our sin and suffering to see all he willingly sacrificed to come for us and to let that move us and free us to draw near to God, to draw near to him, to his heart and enjoy his grace. Look at Jesus and, and see all that he did on your behalf when you were running, in the moment you were running and farther, the farthest you could be from him, rejecting him, he came after you. See his love for you, that it might move you to love and serve others and to share his love for them, with them. Loved much, we are freed to love much. Does your heart for our city 
look like God's heart for Bloomington? Do you share his heart for this place? Do you share his compassion for the people of this place? Look at Jesus. Look at his love for you. The love that he's shown you, the grace that he's shown you, that it might move you toward him in love and enable you to embrace his love for this city, leaning into his call for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see and know and be absolutely gripped by the love and mercy that you have shown us in your son. Holy Spirit, expose for us the ways that we run from you, both in sinful indulgence and in self-righteousness. Free us by the love of Christ to trust you, to know that you are good, to believe that you are good. Jesus, enable us to move toward you in grateful joy and glad surrender, enjoying your love for us and joining you in your love for our city. Enable us to hear and respond to your call, to confess our sin, to repent and believe the gospel and join you on mission here and now. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.